Hello, Neil Tucker here, one of the GPs at the practice. How can I help? You've run out of your prescriptions. Okay, well, let's see if we can get this sorted out. So where do you need me to send them? Italy. Hello, Dr. Tucker here. How can I help? Your tooth hurts. Ah, okay. Have you tried to see your dentist? No, you're down in Cornwall. Can I send you some antibiotics? Hello, it's one of the GPs here calling from the practice. Yeah, had a quite a funny ringtone there. Are you abroad at the moment? Oh, you're in Australia. Right, okay. Well, we don't normally call people when they're abroad. Perhaps you could phone us back? Oh, you don't want to because it's quite expensive. Let's just take a moment to have a little think about that statement. Do you ever get tired of saying no to requests in the summer holidays whilst people are on their holiday? I do, and perhaps sometimes you've just got to start saying yes. We've just had a home visit request for a patient in Provence, and I'm the one who's going to take it. My out-of-office is on, I've screen messaged the team, and I will see you all in two weeks. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of August, and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. Welcome to the Hot Topics podcast from NB Medical. My name is Neil Tucker, here to chat with you about what's going on in general practice and what's going on in the world of primary care research. Apologies, it's taking a little bit longer to get this podcast out than normal. Um, I'm I'm a week behind my own self-imposed schedule and that's because we were busy writing the Hot Topics book. We finished it last week. Now we're down to writing the presentations. Um, Do come and join us in September for the brand new autumn and winter course. Okay, so for the research today, we are going to have a look at a paper in JAMA on cardiovascular events linked to gout. Then we're gonna have a look at pre-diagnostic clinical features and blood results relating to colorectal cancer published in the BJGP. And then round up with another paper in the BJGP on shared decision-making in people with multimorbidity. But before we do that, what has been in the news? Well, general practice has been in the news. This is really good news, either because it's some hatchet job in the newspapers, which one of these stories was, or it's because a politician has invented a new policy, which is generally going to be a bad idea and everyone knows it, but they feel it might win them some votes. And so it comes to pass that the Daily Mail published a story saying that one in five GPs only works 26 hours. This is following on, of course, from all this rhetoric around persistent understaffing in the NHS, putting patient care at risk. And here, of course, we have GPs just being too lazy to help save people's lives. The main thing that shocked me about this story was not that it's another attack on general practice. It was not even the appalling use of statistics. It was the fact that apparently only 20% of GPs are only working 26 hours. That's probably around two days, isn't it? Two days in practice. So that means that 80% of people are working more than that. As someone who works two days a week in practice at the moment, um, albeit with a fairly hefty second job on the side, I am truly astonished and impressed that the great majority of GPs are actually doing vastly more than 26 hours a week. And I would like to thank the Daily Mail for highlighting this important statistic to show how hard general practitioners are actually working. Keep up the good work, everyone.
So the other big story involved in general practice was that Rishi Sunak, Conservative MP and potentially the next Prime Minister, has said that if he gets into power, then he will introduce a £10 fine for anyone who repeatedly misses their GP appointments. Now, this is one of those examples where sometimes we live in our own little bubbles. So I don't like this idea very much. I'm generally morally against the idea of charging people for their GP appointments. I think it will disadvantage the least well-off in society. It will increase health inequalities. In any case, I think it's going to have little impact. These days, I'll be honest, I rarely seem to get any DNAs in my surgeries. When I do, like many of us, with our relentlessly overstretched days, I am pathetically grateful. Previous pieces of research have suggested that this approach will probably cost money rather than saving or generating it. I think we can all imagine who are going to be the ones that will front that cost. And it's going to be up to the practice to, to decide if they actually want to find someone. I don't like confrontation at the best of times, so this is not going to be one that's going to sit well with me. And then let's take a little logic train to the, the end point of this concept where... If we want to charge people, then how are we going to enforce that? Are we going to fine them? What do we do when they don't pay? Are we going to send debt collectors around from our doctor's surgeries? Anyway, you get my point. But this is just my opinion. And it's not just Rishi Sunak. It's not just 160,000 largely elderly, largely white Conservative Party members that might also think that this is a good idea. Uh, it's also, according to Pulse's survey from 2017, slightly more than half of GPs. Some of the reasons cited include some practices having large numbers of DNAs. Um, also, just trying to get people to value the NHS and the care that they're given a little bit more. I'm not here to provide you with any answers. I'm not even here to try and change your mind. I just quite like the discord and the debate and political turmoil, if nothing else, does keep life quite interesting. Now, let's get to the research and we're going to kick off with this paper in JAMA. Now, this uh, only came out last night, but it caught my eye because earlier in the day, I'd been having a telephone conversation with a patient about her first episode of gout. Now, gout is a fascinating condition. Traditionally, we've considered it to be a uh, intermittent, painful monoarthritis, which gets better with some treatment and then may recur in the future. But over the last two decades, our understanding of the condition has grown and we now know that in between those acute flares, you can still get progressive joint damage and it's a systemic disease as well, increasing risks of many common conditions, particularly cardiovascular events. The most recent UK national guidelines on gout suggest that even after one episode, people should have prophylaxis. Because it's not really one episode. We've just seen an acute flare, but the gout hasn't gone away. The gout's just bubbling away underneath, slowly damaging your joints, slowly damaging your blood vessels, driving systemic inflammation. And I know these guidelines, but I have to say I am guilty of not following them to the letter. I dare say that almost no patients who've had just one flare of gout has been started on prophylaxis. But there are strong rationales of why we might want to adopt this approach. And this JAMA paper certainly supports that. So this was a case control study of 62,500 patients. And they were trying to work out what's the chance of having a cardiovascular event if you just had a flare of your gout. Now, this is retrospective data. It's pulled 
from English records from the clinical practice research data link over around 24 years up to the end of 2020. And because it's retrospective data, they have to kind of try and work out what the risk is in a slightly roundabout way. So they actually looked at people who have gout. They then looked at those who experienced a cardiovascular event compared them against people with gout who didn't have a cardiovascular event and then went back to see if they'd had a recent flare of their gout in the preceding days. This also means that they're looking at associations, not proving causality. The data showed that if you just had a cardiovascular event, you had double the chance of having had a recent flare of gout. So within the last 60 days, compared with those who had had no cardiovascular event. In fact, that association was maintained for at least 120 days, albeit at a lower level. And the authors concluded that these findings suggest that gout flares are associated with a transient increase in cardiovascular events following a flare. So I think this is really interesting on a number of levels. It reminds us that gout is not just about joints. It also suggests that at the same time that you're getting a flare-up of gout in one of your joints, you're also getting a flare-up of gout in the rest of your body as well. And this can have important acute consequences. You could argue that if someone is having an acute flare of gout, that should prompt us to be doing a cardiovascular risk assessment, taking into account their heightened level of risk over the next two to four months. And finally, it strengthens the argument for early prophylaxis in the management of gout to try and reduce the chance of cardiovascular events. Is this enough to change the way we recommend prophylaxis to our patients? Well, as my lady said to me, oh, I've heard about prophylaxis. Well, I don't think I want it after my first episode, but if I had more, I'd reconsider. I think that's a very common way of thinking. I think that we as clinicians think that way too. And I think that is going to be a hard thing to change. Now, the next paper is in the BJGP and this month's BJGP, another fantastic issue, big focus on cancer this month. And I don't know if pretty much all these papers I'm talking about today have stood out because they are direct reflections of my work from yesterday. So this one is entitled Pre-Diagnostic Clinical Features and Blood Tests in Patients with Colorectal Cancer, a retrospective, retrospective Linked Data Study. And that's because yesterday I did four PRs for um, four different patients, not all on the same patient. Um, so four, uh, four PRs for patients who presented with colorectal symptoms. Now, I'm no stranger to PRs, but I'll be honest, it seemed like quite a heavy load in one day. Now, this paper has nothing to do with PRs, um, but it acknowledges that the majority of colorectal cancer is diagnosed in patients who have symptomatic presentation and therefore ask the question, are there any clinical features, be it um, symptoms or abnormal blood tests, which might give an indication that something is going on before the disease has progressed and inevitably people become clearly symptomatic for cancer. So this was a retrospective cohort study using data from primary care and cancer databases in England. And they picked common presenting features such as change in bowel habit, rectal bleeding, abdominal pain, abdominal mass, constitutional symptoms and other bowel symptoms. 
and then commonly used tests such as haemoglobin, platelet count and inflammatory markers. And they examined the records of 5,000 people with colon cancer, 2,500 people with rectal cancer, looking back in the preceding two years to see if any of these clinical features or abnormal blood tests were consulted about prior to the diagnosis of cancer being made. This is another one of those studies that I found it a little bit hard to get my head around the results initially, but once you kind of get there, it does have implications for clinical practice. So the authors found that the consultation rates for all the examined clinical features and abnormal blood tests increase in the year prior to diagnosis of cancer. This was particularly true for abdominal pain and change in bowel habit for colon cancer and for rectal bleeding and change in bowel habit for rectal cancer. They found that rectal bleeding was the earliest clinical feature to increase from the baseline rate of consultations. So 10 months pre-diagnosis for colon cancer and eight months pre-diagnosis for rectal cancer. I think the lesson we can take from this is that a lot of people are presenting with rectal bleeding a long way before they get a diagnosis of cancer. So what are we doing with all these people that have rectal bleeding? Are we simply ignoring it? Perhaps they fail to meet urgent referral criteria. So for NICE, that would be if you're under 50 and you've got rectal bleeding. And then we don't go on and investigate this group in any other way. In fact, NICE in its suspected cancer guidance actually says one of the other two-week wait criteria is being positive for occult blood. The implication being that even if someone has had some intermittent rectal bleeding, it can be useful to do a stool test to see what's going on when they're not bleeding. Now a quick plug and one that's quite a long way in advance. On October the 11th, it's a Tuesday night, in the evening we'll be doing one of our Hot Topics clinics. It's a free webinar that I'll be presenting in conjunction with Crohn's and Colitis UK. And one of the key messages that we'll be talking about there is that particularly in younger people who maybe have presented with intermittent PR bleeding or ongoing abdominal symptoms, let's do a stool test, check a fecal calprotectin, or um, maybe in slightly older people, check a fecal occult blood or a fit test these days. They're really simple, relatively cheap tests to do and can give us a lot of useful information. As the BJGP paper says, if there's delays of more than three months in diagnosis of cancer, that equates to poorer outcomes. I've always thought that every day matters, and I'm still pretty sure that's probably true in the real world. But in research terms, they talk about three months being the point at which things start getting really bad. So a delay of eight, nine, ten months from a presentation of rectal bleeding to the point of diagnosis, I think we can consider to be a really bad thing. So this is a useful finding and clearly the message of let's not wait around sitting on people who have got blood coming out their bum is important. But this finding is all about avoiding diagnostic delay. It's not really driving earlier diagnosis, not in its true sense. But here's where the abnormal blood tests may be of use. So particularly colon cancer was frequently associated with a low haemoglobin, high inflammatory markers and high platelets in the 12 months prior to diagnosis. Around 28% of people had the first two and 18% had high platelets. The findings weren't so stark for rectal cancer, so around 9% had low haemoglobin, 10% had high platelets and 18% had high inflammatory markers. 
So while these results show that many people will not have abnormal blood tests, if we do see it in patients, if we do see that low hemoglobin, high inflammatory markers, high platelets, and it's unexplained, it is worth going back and just doing a systems inquiry and exploring a little bit more about what's going on. Could they have any of these other features? Could they have some random abdominal pain, some low-level constitutional symptoms, or indeed if they just not told us about the rectal bleeding that's been going on for the past few months? Our last paper is also from the BJGP this month and is a nice piece of qualitative work looking at shared decision making between older people with multimorbidity and GPs. So we have two themes to think about here. Firstly, we've got multimorbidity. We've got an aging population living longer with lots of long-term conditions and that's quite difficult to manage. We know that most guidelines look at treating single disease problems and we just don't have the data to actually tell us whether managing people who have lots of single disease problems actually works and is helpful or could actually be counterproductive and lead to harm. This is particularly important in the very elderly who tend to get more adverse events from the medication we're prescribing to try and help them. The second theme is shared decision making. This is an intrinsic part of patient-centred care that we're all meant to be delivering in, in general practice. And what's really interesting here is that most of us believe we're doing really well with shared decision making, but actually data suggests that we're only using it in around 10% of applicable situations. And then when we do, um, we're generally doing it incorrectly. You go back and you ask patients what they think and they have very different views. Now, this paper stuck out to me because of another patient that I saw recently, a very elderly lady who was getting really troubled by her very easy bruising. This was down to the low-dose aspirin she'd been started 20 or so years ago for a TIA. Now, she's on a whole bunch of medications, massive polypharmacy. She desperately liked to stop this aspirin. But I'm mindful that guidelines say she's had a TIA, she should be on aspirin. So stopping it even if that's what she wants, makes me feel very uncomfortable. The first thought is, will something bad happen if I stop it? The second thought is, if something bad happens, will I get in trouble? So as part of this qualitative work, they did groups with patients age 65 and over with multimorbidity, and then also groups with GPs. Both groups acknowledged that medico-legal vulnerability was an issue. So GPs cited that as a reason why they might recommend treatment and maybe a barrier to shared decision making. Patients recognise that this is a problem, that guidelines are almost always going to be single disease guidelines and not necessarily applicable to the complex multimorbidity that their individual has, that this makes decision making very complex for the clinician. But they also say if an open and honest approach around the discussion about the complexities is made, then that's okay. That's what they're looking for. And that should satisfy things medico-legally. What did I do with my patient and her aspirin? Well, I stopped it because that's what she wanted. She understood the complexity of what seems like a relatively simple question around whether it's okay to stop aspirin or not. And she's happy to accept the potential risks for the potential benefits that stopping it could afford. All of this is carefully documented and I hope that we've satisfied both of our agendas. That's it for today. The podcast will be back in early September. Do remember to check out the mbmedical.com website. We've got lots of live webinars coming up in September. We've got our diabetes course, our new dermatology course. Come and join us 
for that, we've got our nurses course, our mental health course, our abnormal blood test course. We have got, of course, the new Hot Topics course coming out later in September as well. Please do join us for that. Remember, if you subscribe to MB+, all of this is included, but you can sign up individually as well. Just have a look at the website. I hope that your summer is okay. I hope that most of your patients are abroad at the moment and the practice is having a relative break. I hope that you get a genuine break yourself and I will see you once again in September. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye.